Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Uh, My name is Luke. I get to serve as one of the ministers here at PCC. And I have a three-year-old son named Judah who's learning how to ride his bike right now. And so yesterday we went on a bike ride and he was kind of getting to figure out. He's chugging along. He's going pretty fast and he's feeling pretty good about himself. But then we came up on a downhill slope and he learned something that most of us have learned by now is that it's pretty easy to figure out how to go fast. And sometimes it's a lot harder to figure out how to slow down. And there's something that happens in the human brain when your bike gets the speed wobbles, you forget where the brakes are all of a sudden, right? And and this is kind of what uh, happened yesterday with our family. And I think it's kind of what God might want to do with his people today is I think part of what God wants to do in us is he wants to remind us where the brakes are. We're in a series right now called The Art of Neighboring, where we're walking through Luke chapter 10 with eight of our sister churches. So as we jump into the message today, let's just pause right now and ask God to bless these churches. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be your people, to be a part of your church. And we ask that you would empower us and lead us. And we ask also, Lord, that you would empower and lead all of your church all around the world. But specifically today, we ask this for Steve Higgs at Northwest Christian Church and Jordan Ickes at Etna Green Church of Christ and Gary Black at Clayton Christian Church and Matt and Carrie Dilley at Tribe Church and Tim Parsons at the Journey Church, and Steve Bolin at Thrive Church, and Matt Nickerson at Kingsway Christian Church, we ask, Father, that you would use them, that you would bless them, that you would grow them, that you would lead them, that you would give them health and vitality, that you would bear fruit through them and through us, that you would use all of us, Lord, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, so that you will be made famous on the earth. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. So last week we kicked off this, this series uh, talking about these two greatest commands that Jesus has given us, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And these are pretty important, and I hope last week that you are able to grab one of these neighborhood grids. If you didn't, you can grab one on the way out today and start filling those out. Uh, this logo in the middle represents your house, and the squares around it are where we're going to write the names of our neighbors so that we can build relationships with them and begin to pray for them. Except here's the thing, here's the thing, for the next two weeks, we're we're going to be talking about some of the obstacles that stand in the way of us fulfilling these two commands, because this is the calling for every one of us. At VBS this week, the kids learned that we're all called to be missionaries, and they learned how to say it in Spanish, that we are missionaros, right guys? And we are missionaros everywhere, that you are a missionary to your neighborhood, to your school, to your workplace, to your family. And that's why we took the one challenge this year as a church, that we want everybody to pick one person in your life who's far from God and to commit to praying for them every day, to eating with them, to asking them good questions, to build a relationship with them, because we are missionaries. We are sent to love God and to love people. And yet, for most of us, we probably aren't doing that as well as we want to yet. And so we're going to hit some of these obstacles that are standing in the way of us fully loving God and loving people. And today, I think we might hit the biggest one of all in our society. And it's just this, that I don't have time. Anybody else feel that? I just don't have time. And so today in Luke chapter 10, at the end of the chapter, there's a story from the life of Jesus that's instructive for us. Verses 38 and 39 says this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet 
listening to what he said. Now, we know from our time so far this year in the Gospel of John that Mary and Martha are the sisters of Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. And here we see Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, listening. She's listening. Now, our 21st century ears hear that. We might not think much of it, but in those days, this was absolutely unheard of because in that day, women were to be seen and not heard. Their role was in the kitchen. And yet, here is Mary. She's sitting, listening at Jesus' feet as a full-fledged student of a Jewish rabbi. That is radically countercultural. You see, Jesus, he loves to flip the script and to bring dignity to those who are outcast. And he loves to elevate the role of women. He did this throughout his ministry. Women were chosen as the first ones at the manger and the last ones at the cross, and he chose women to be the very first witnesses of his resurrection. The idea, listen to me, the idea that men and women are created equal is not a feminist idea, it's a Christian idea. And yet not everybody admired here what Mary is doing, because look what happens in verses 40 through 42. It says, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So here's sister number two, it's Martha, and she, she's angry, she's upset, she's worried, she's unsettled, she's so blinded by the urgent that she misses out on the ultimate. And I wonder if in my life, in your life, if as a society, we can be so at risk of being caught up in the urgency of the tasks right in front of us that we neglect the most important things of all, that Jesus said are to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, there's an author by the name of John Ortberg who tells a story of a time when he called a friend of his, the great spiritual teacher, Dallas Willard. And John Ortberg, he told Dallas Willard about his life, about his family, about his job, about his, his pace of living. And he asked him, he said, what, what, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? And there was a long pause on the other end of the phone. And Dallas Willard says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Another long pause. John Arbor said, okay, okay, I've got that one down. Now that's good. Now, now, now what else? Because you know he was, he was busy. He's a busy man. He doesn't have a lot of time. He, he wants to cram as many little nuggets of spiritual insight into this one conversation as he possibly could. This is a long distance phone call. He wants to kind of move it along a little bit. But then still, there's another long pause on the other end of the line. There is nothing else, Dallas said. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Out of Dallas Willard's deep quiver of spiritual insights, he drew only one arrow. Stop hurrying. Or as Jesus would say, Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Now, can I just tell you that as a pastor, I have a deep and growing concern about the pace of life that the world is sucking us into and what it is doing to our souls. And I'm not here to throw stones today. I'm not even mad. I'm not even saying this is bad, but I am saying that it makes me a little bit sad when I ask people how they're doing. And one of the most common responses I hear is, oh, good, we're just, we're busy, you know? And the world is trying to trick us into wearing busyness around as some kind of badge of honor. 
Sociologists say that we as a society are suffering from hurry sickness because our lives are fast-paced, aren't they? We see this even in the things that we name things, right? We do our taxes with QuickBooks and we get money from Quicken Loans and we use a phone service called Sprint and we put pictures on Instagram and we diet with SlimFast and we wear swimsuits called Speedo. Well, some people do, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) We have speed dialing and speed dating and speed reading and we've even invented things called speed bumps to try to slow us down and they don't work at all. Somebody once said that we are the only nation in the world with a mountain called Rushmore. Hurry sickness. So I'm not interested in public shaming today. I'm not going to make you raise your hands. I don't want to see any elbows between spouses or anything like that. But would it be all right if I asked a few diagnostic questions here for a minute to see if we might be suffering from this disease? Question number one. How many meals this week did you eat while you were also doing something else? Did you eat while you were driving or sitting at your desk working or reading or watching TV or on the phone? How many meals did you eat while you were also doing something else? How many conversations did you have with somebody where they kind of got in your way, they interrupted, you really had something you needed to be doing or somewhere you needed to be? So instead of like really dropping everything, making eye contact and listening all the way through, you kind of just wanted to speed the conversation on a little bit, get it over with. And so as they're talking, you're trying to get them to get to the point. You're nodding your head saying, "Mm -hmm, yeah, uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Some of you are doing it to me right now. Please stop. (laughs) Okay, uh, let's say you approach a stoplight. There are two lanes to choose from at a red light. Which lane do you put your car in? What do we do, right? We we count the number of cars in the lane. And not only that, but if you're really sick, not only that, you start to analyze the cars by make, by model, by year. You analyze the drivers of the car by gender, by age, by hairstyle, trying to figure out who might get off the blocks first and can I put myself behind them? Am I the only one who does this? At the grocery store, which checkout aisle do you get to? Now, if you're anything like me, you kind of walk along, take a look, look over there, okay? You you, you try to analyze them, how many people are in each aisle, right? And not only that, but if you're really good at math, not only how many people are in each aisle, but how fast is that particular cashier working as opposed to that one multiplied by the number of items in each cart? And that is how you choose which line you end up in, right? And if you're really sick, like if you're deeply, deeply infected by this, you get in line, but you also notice all the other people who are getting in line at the same time, and you kind of watch them, don't you? Kind of watch them, see who's going to get out first. See if you were right or not. And if you get out first, you're feeling pretty good. You won. You kind of strut through the rest of your day, right? But if you don't, if you lost, then be honest with me. You leave a little bit depressed, don't you? We are deeply infected people. Hurry sickness. In the year 1967, there was an expert who testified before the United States Senate, and he said this. Now, this is in 1967. He said that with all the labor-saving technology that was being invented, he said within 20 years, the average American would be working 32 weeks a year at 22 hours a week and retiring by the age of 40 because of all the work that the technology was going to do for them. In fact, he said, the number one challenge that Americans would face with regard to their time was just what to do with all the excess time they had left over. (laughs) Now... Now that we are a few decades removed from this prediction, let me ask you, is that your number one challenge with regard to the clock? Just what to do with all your extra time? (laughs) So let me humbly submit to you today that perhaps, perhaps, the reason we aren't fully living out our calling to love God and love people yet in the way that we want to, in the way that God wants us to, is that we're just in a hurry And hurry stands in the way of loving God and loving people. For starters, hurry keeps us from loving God. We saw it very plainly in this story. 
Verse 40 says, but Martha was distracted. And it caused her to miss out on Jesus. Anybody else ever get distracted? A survey in the year 2000 showed that the average attention span is 12 seconds. It was repeated 20 years later, and now the average attention span is eight seconds. <laughs> We've gotten worse. Not only that, but scientists say that the goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. So congratulations, we're being beaten by a goldfish. <gasps> Distraction, right? John Warburg says this. He says, for many of us, the danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. We will settle for five minutes of praying in the car rather than sitting alone in the quiet for as long as it takes to tune into God's presence. We'll settle for a verse of the day on the Bible app rather than truly sitting and digging deep and soaking, marinating in God's word. We will skim our way across the surface of our lives, loving God with a little bit of our heart, and a sliver of our soul, and the leftover portions of our mind, and an ounce or two of our strength, because we're distracted. And you know this feeling. My, my, my wife showed me a meme yesterday. It said, my mind is like my internet browser. 19 tabs open, three of them are frozen, and I have no idea where the music is coming from. <laughs> and we, we, we know this feeling, don't we? You're distracted and you're in a hurry and your soul is just kind of icky and you have trouble focusing and your mind is trying to do seven different things at once and your soul is just churning. And listen, friends, you weren't made for that. Hundreds of years ago, St. Augustine said this in a prayer to God. He said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And listen, I'm not preaching to you today as one who has this all figured out. I'm talking to myself today. And for me, in my own life, perhaps the biggest source of my hurry, perhaps the biggest source of distraction is this thing right here. These things are amazing tools, aren't they? They can do so much good. Do you know how many times the average iPhone user touches their phone every day? 2,617 times. By contrast, King David said this in Psalm 16. He said, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. And yet, if I'm honest, my eyes are on my phone a lot more than they are on the Lord. Just imagine, imagine what kind of person I could be if my mind engaged God's presence every time my fingers engage my phone. Hurry keeps us from loving God, but also hurry keeps us from loving people. Those parenting books were all right when they said that a child spells love, T-I-M-E, right? I saw a statistic this week that said that the average family spends 37 minutes a day together, 37 minutes, and that the average American father gives each of his children three minutes of undivided attention per day. Sure is hard to make a disciple on three minutes a day. Again, John Ortberg says, the reason that hurrying is so dangerous is because love and hurry are not compatible. Love always takes time, and time is the one thing hurried people don't have. But we're talking about neighboring specifically this month. And so there was a survey that asked people, hey, if you would be open to having a conversation about faith, if you'd be open to having a spiritual conversation with someone, what kind of traits would you need to see in that person in order to make you willing to have a spiritual conversation with them? And the respondents said that the number one trait they would be looking for is someone who would listen to them without judgment. 
They want somebody who's going to listen to them without judgment. And two-thirds of the people surveyed said that they did not have anybody in their life like that. Why They just want to be listened to, but listening takes time, you know? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So could you be that kind of person? Like, do you have the space in your life to rub shoulders with people, to bump into people, and when you do, to give them the time to listen to them so that they leave your conversation feeling loved and heard and listened to? That takes time. Because this kind of love-your-neighbor hospitality is not a microwave thing. It's a crockpot thing. To love God, to love your neighbor, it's hard. But, but, but if this is a biblical command then when we say, I don't have time to love my neighbor, what we're really saying is, I don't have time to be a Christian. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And this is a big sacrifice, I get it. It means saying no to other things, saying no to good things so that we can say yes to what Jesus says is best. And that's a sacrificial gift to give, but we are giving it because we have been given the same sacrificial gift. This call to an unhurried life is based on the character of God as displayed in the good news of his son, Jesus. Because listen, when you pray, God's never gonna say to you, I don't have time right now. (laughs) During Jesus's ministry, he didn't walk around with his AirPods in. (laughs) I mean, can can you imagine Jesus stressed out, snapping at Mary because he's running late for synagogue? (laughs) Can you imagine Jesus as as Martha's telling him a story, he's kind of half listening? Uh Uh-huh, yeah, (laughs) that's funny, (laughs) while he's texting? no. Like, that's, that's not Jesus. And listen, none of us, none of us have anything more important to do than the things that Jesus had to do. And yet he still lived a totally unhurried life. One theologian said that it was no accident that God chose to send his son to earth before the days of planes, trains, and automobiles. He calls Jesus the three-mile-an-hour God because three miles an hour is the average walking pace of a human being. When God chose to save the world, he didn't come as a God-in-a-hurry God. He came as a three-mile-an-hour God, walking at the pace of people because that's the pace of love. And it was this kind of unhurried lifestyle that enabled Jesus to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Time and time and time again, we see Jesus refusing to be distracted by the urgent in a way that would cause him to miss out on the ultimate. We see Jesus regularly leaving behind the crowds, leaving behind people who would love to hear more of him. They would love to have a piece of him. He leaves sermons unpreached and people unhealed and work undone so that he can go be with God. Luke 5, 16 says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. No matter the pressures around him, he made time to be with God. Do we? And Jesus' unhurried lifestyle also helped him to love people. Because all throughout the Gospels, if you read them, you'll notice that some of Jesus' best moments in ministry come at moments of inconvenience. That because Jesus was unhurried, he was also interruptible. And Jesus would slow down and he would engage with someone in their moment of need, even if it interrupted him. And that's him saying, hey, listen, you are more important than the tasks I have right now. You are worth stopping for. Do people feel that about you? Listen, if we're gonna love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength as Jesus did, if we're gonna love our neighbors as ourselves like Jesus did, then we have to live an unhurried life like Jesus did. Now, thankfully, God, in his infinite wisdom and grace, he knows our weakness. 
He knows that we're not good at this. He knows that left to our own devices, we're like a kid on a bike plummeting down a hill with no idea where the brakes are. He knows that we're just gonna get busier and busier and faster and faster, and that on our own, we are incapable, incapable of the kind of love that Jesus is calling us to. And so, God has hardwired a divine stop sign into the universe. It's called the Sabbath. In Hebrew, the Jews would call it Shabbat. Say Shabbat. Shabbat, it's a Hebrew word meaning to stop or to cease. The the Sabbath is the stopping day. Because here's the thing. When you're busy, when you're in a hurry, when you've got a lot of stuff on your to-do list, you see this call to love your neighbors, to build relationships with the people around you, and maybe you think what I think about it. Sure, that sounds great. I just don't have time for it right now. But I think that's a fallacy. Because here's the basic truth that every human being on the planet has to live by. We have time for what we make time for, right? You have time for what you make time for. And so in order to make sure that we make time for what's most important, God gave us the Sabbath. Way back in the very beginning when God created the world, he did it in six days. And then Genesis chapter two, verse two says this. By the seventh day, God finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Now think about it. Did did God need to rest? But she's like, man, I'm just beat. It has been a week. I'm exhausted. I'm gonna go take a nap. Like, no. God, God didn't rest because he needed to rest. He rested to establish a precedent for his people that every week they were to take a 24-hour period where there was no weird work allowed. It was, it was a Shabbat, a stopping, a ceasing day. And he even put this in the Jewish law. It's the fourth of the 10 commandments. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Exodus chapter 20. And I would like to suggest that maybe, just maybe, God actually knew what he was talking about. And so this week, I'm gonna challenge you to Shabbat, to Sabbath, to stop and cease, to stop in the name of love. (laughs) And I'm gonna give you three reasons why. Here you go, reason number one, stop to rest. Did you know that before Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, the average person slept 11 hours a night? That now the average person sleeps seven hours a night. And I have a baby. I think seven hours sounds awesome. (laughs) For the Jews, they actually measured time differently than we do. They marked their days differently. For them, a day began in the evening. And I kind of love this, that, that for them, the day began with the family gathered around the dinner table. And after we have this time of connection and sharing, then they would go to sleep and they would rest and then they would wake up and then they would end the day with productivity. They would finish by working. I love that. The day starts with connection, it moves to rest and then and only then do they go to productivity. And this would go on for six days but then on the seventh day was the Sabbath, the Shabbat, a day of rest. And so from Friday at dusk to Saturday at dusk, it was this no work allowed zone. And I think that we are in need of a no work allowed zone. Because here's what I've learned in my own life. If I'm living a life that is too fast, too busy, too hurried, too sleepless, then that's a little warning light going on on my spiritual dashboard indicating that I may have a deeper heart issue at the root of this. This isn't just a busyness to-do list issue. It's a heart issue that I might just idolize productivity, that I might just have an overinflated sense of my own self-importance. And so sometimes the very best act of worship that I can give is just to stop even to take a nap as a reminder that God is God and that I am not, and he's gonna be just fine running the universe without me. Stop to rest, that's the first thing. Second thing is this, stop to worship. Stop to worship. We read in Exodus chapter 20 that God says to keep the Sabbath day holy. 
to keep it set apart. It's a different kind of day. It's not just the day off. And on, on your day off, you can you know, binge your favorite show or run errands and stuff. That's fine on a day off. You can be like Martha on a day off, still scurrying around, being busy, being distracted. But listen, that's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day where we're supposed to be merry, where we stop to worship, to focus on God, to sit at Jesus' feet, to fulfill commandment number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're called to do things that draw our hearts to him. Stop to rest, stop to worship. And the third thing is this, stop to connect. The Sabbath is also for the second greatest command, to help us love and pay attention to the people around us. Notice, attention is something so valuable that we pay it. A couple of weeks ago, I got to sit down at a table and have lunch with one of my spiritual heroes, one of the godliest and most loving men uh, that I have ever met. And I, I love the way this guy makes people feel. He just makes everybody in his path feel so loved. And so I've watched and studied the way he interacts with people because I wanna make people feel that when they interact with me. And so I asked him about his life and what he does, and I asked him about his family, and here's what he said to me. He said, honestly, we live a pretty boring life. We don't go around scurrying from activity to activity. We, we really just spend a lot of time at home together. Now, this man, is, he is a, he's a man with a huge job and massive amount of influence. You'd probably recognize his name. He's well-known across the country. He has money. He has influence. He has opportunity. His kid is a nationally recognized baseball player, one of the best baseball players in the state. They have plenty of opportunities to be busy, but they have chosen not to be. They've chosen to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from their lives, and as a result, they have the margin and they have the time to eat dinner together as a family and to love their neighbors and to build lasting friendships. And whenever God interrupts their life with somebody, they have the time to be able to love that person well. And that is as radically countercultural in our world today as Mary sitting at Jesus' feet was back then. Listen, guys, I know this is hard. I know our lives are crazy. I know your schedules are nuts. I know family life is hectic. I get it, I get it. But this is the command, to, to say no to good things so that we can say yes to the best thing because that's the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us. God valued us so much that he made himself interruptible. And he came down out of heaven and he sent his son Jesus to model perfect love. And Jesus, in his perfect love, lived an unhurried life that took him all the way to the cross where he died to pay for my sins and your sins. And he rose again where he's now making a place for us to come over to his house. And he sent us his Holy Spirit so that we can know him and have a relationship with him. And now every time you talk to him, he's gonna listen. And when we know that we have been loved like that, then I hope like Mary, you're gonna wanna sit at Jesus' feet for a little while longer. And that when he gives you opportunities to love the people in your path, you're gonna love him, love them like he has loved you. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter five. He says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So are you living wisely? Do you have the space in your life to make the most of every opportunity to love God and to love people? Are you ruthlessly eliminating hurry from your life? I have two challenges for you this week for how you can love this out, a beginner challenge and an expert challenge. You guys think you can do this? Here's challenge number one. Take a prayer walk with your family. At some point this week, I want you with your family or your friends to walk around your neighborhood and just to pray. I want you to pray for the houses that you pass, pray for your one challenge person, ask God to bless the people that you see. And I know this might be awkward, but I want you to do it. And if on your prayer walk, God actually answers your prayer and you get to have a conversation with somebody, make the most of that opportunity. Stop, listen, make them feel loved. Make a habit of taking prayer walks together. That's challenge number one. 
Here's challenge number two. If you really wanna level up, I challenge you also to try a Sabbath this week, a Shabbat, 24 hours of no work, no technology, turn your phone off, focus on rest, worship, and connection so that you can make the most opportunity, make time for what's important, loving God and loving people. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for showing us what love looks like. This is such a great love we have been given. Thank you for always hearing us when we talk to you, even now. Help us, Lord, to love like you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.